hasn't been in a meeting like this. It's not entirely clear who's in charge, or the person who is, is clueless. Nobody quite knows how to proceed, or more likely, everybody thinks they do, and so the discussion can be unpleasant and difficult, counterproductive, even paralyzing. Then, at some particularly critical and contentious point, somebody, in a vain attempt to resolve the situation or just get the upper hand, will get really frustrated and fed up and will blurt out the dreaded point of order. That, in my experience, is the beginning of the end. Then starts the scrambling for rules, often making them up as you go along. Feelings get hurt, the volume rises, and everybody might just as well call it a day because nothing's going to get done now. It's easy to mock parliamentary procedure. It's often portrayed as a technicality or trick or maneuver, as though somehow using it is underhanded or unfair, but of course it's precisely the opposite. Without these kinds of detailed and specific rules, stipulated and agreed to, what's the alternative? That's the question answered by an army engineer and general who, more than a century ago, laid down the law or at least the rules by which the law can get made. A document that changed the world, the Pocket Manual of Rules of Order for Deliberative Assemblies, better known as Robert's Rules of Order, written by Henry Martin Robert, 1876. I'm Joe Janes of the University of Washington Information School. The idea of a body of people coming together to discuss or make decisions among themselves is ancient, recorded as far back as Thucydides 2,500 years ago. In the Anglo-Saxon tradition, this became the village moot, which eventually evolved into a parliament, from the Latin for meeting, by the 13th century. The rules for their debates took shape over time, were first expressed in written form in the 1560s, and even at that early point they had many aspects we find familiar today, discussing one topic at a time and staying on that point, alternating speeches between opposing points of view, the importance of decorum and not introducing personalities into the discussion, all of which were in place by the early 17th century. These practices came to the American colonies and formed the structure for rules in colonial assemblies and the Continental Congress, not to mention the new U.S. Congress. Thomas Jefferson, presiding over the new Senate as vice president, wrote its first manual of procedure in 1801, based largely on the rules of the English Parliament. As the states formed their post-colonial governments and legislatures, they developed sets of rules based also on the English model, though naturally each in their own way. Enter Henry Martin Robert, a civic-minded minister's son who, after a bout of tropical fever, is reassigned by the army in 1863 to Massachusetts, and promptly finds himself presiding over a 14-hour meeting on the defense of New Bedford from Confederate attack. He was at a loss and mortified because he didn't know what to do. That embarrassment led to a resolution that he would never again be in that situation, and in typical 19th century American fashion, he set out to do something about it. He read all the books he could get his hands on, on rules for meetings, including Jefferson's, and discovered there was great disparity in no small part because of those variations by state. He started to compile first a basic list, then what he thought would be a slim 16-page guide that would be of general use so that people who belong to multiple groups and societies 
didn't have to keep readjusting to new sets of rules. The army transfers him all over the country following the Civil War until he lands in Milwaukee one frigid winter, waiting for the ice to melt, and got to work. For a book that's been around for a century and a quarter, now in an 11th revised edition, and has entered the lexicon, it's odd to think that, at first, he couldn't get it published. With no apparent interest, he paid for the printing of 4,000 copies, the first thousand of which he sent to educators, legislators, and parliamentarians nationwide. He sold out within months, and a second edition was out almost immediately. That first edition is now worth about $2,000, and much of its basic structure and even language remains in Roberts today. Its intent was to free groups from confusion and dispute over rules so they could get on with conducting the business at hand. Well, that's great, but wow, it's now over 700 pages of very precise, one might even say persnickety, language about often arcane, exotic, and rare situations, such as whether or not the motion to reconsider extending the limits of debate requires a second. It does, for the record. I have to tell you, this stuff is not for the faint of heart. There are other simpler sets of rules for smaller groups, though of course nothing so comprehensive, influential, or widely recognized. In trying, though, to be more comprehensive and all-purpose, it becomes more complicated, bigger, and more difficult to master. The truly committed professional can even receive certification from the National Association of Parliamentarians. And pause with me for just a second to imagine what their meetings must be like. Robert's personal legacy is in the book itself and the family business that keeps it going to this day. After his death, his only son, Henry Jr., took it on under a trusteeship, followed by Jr.'s widow Sarah, and then her son, Henry III, who was still credited, along with a number of others, on the 11th edition. For Henry Sr., I could find only a couple of minor biographies and a master's thesis about his life. Even his tombstone in Arlington National Cemetery makes no mention of his parliamentary work and contributions. His military engineering career was also quite distinguished, and he worked on major projects from the Puget Sound to Long Island to the Mississippi River, rising eventually to Brigadier General and U.S. Army Chief of Engineers, a position he held, apparently, for exactly three days before retiring in 1901. It's easy to get lost among the parliamentary trees and miss the forest. Robert was striving to promote order not only in your average Rotary Club meeting, but in the wider society. One of his better-known quotes goes like this, The great lesson for democracies to learn is for the majority to give to the minority a full, free opportunity to present their side of the case, and then for the minority, having failed to win, gracefully to submit and to recognize the action as that of the entire organization and cheerfully to assist in carrying out until they can secure its repeal. What an appealing, if quaint, notion in our increasingly partisan and polarized world. <laughs>